Up from earth's center through the seventh gate I rose and on the throne of Saturn sate And many knots unraveled by the road But not the knot of human death and fate There was a door to which I found no key there was a veil past which I could not see Some little talk a while of me and thee there seemed And then no more of thee and me Then to the rolling heaven itself I cried Asking what lamp had destiny to guide Her little children stumbling in the dark And a blind understanding heaven replied Then to this earthen bowl did I adjourn my lip the secret well of life to learn And lip to lip it murmured While you live, drink For once dead you never shall return I think the vessel that with fugitive Articulation answered Once did live And merry make and the cold lip I kissed, how many kisses might it take and give? For in the marketplace one dusk of day, I watched the potter thumping his wet clay, and with its all obliterated tongue, it murmured, gently, brother, gently pray. Ah, fill the cup, what boots it to repeat How time is slipping underneath our feet Unborn tomorrow and dead yesterday Why fret about them if today be sweet One moment in annihilation's waste one moment of the well of life to taste The stars are setting And the caravan starts for the dawn of nothing Oh, make haste How long, how long in infinite pursuit Of this and that endeavor and dispute Better be merry with the fruitful grape Than sadden after none or bitter fruit You know, my friends, how long since in my house For a new marriage I did make a rouse Divorced old barren reason from my bed and took the daughter of the vine to spouse. For is and is not, though with rule and line, and up and down without I could define, 
I yet in all I only cared to know was never deep in anything but wine. And lately by the tavern door agape came stealing through the dusk an angel shape bearing a vessel on his shoulder and he bid me taste of it and twas the grape. The grape that can with logic absolute the two and seventy jarring sects confute. The subtle alchemist that in a trice life's leaden metal into gold transmute. The mighty Mahmud, the victorious Lord, that all the misbelieving and black horde of fears and sorrows that infest the soul scatters and slays with his enchanted sword. But leave the wise to wrangle and with me the quarrel of the universe let be. And in some corner of the hubbub couched make game of that which makes as much of thee. I think I'll follow the pattern I followed last week and I'll just read the verse again and then we'll go from there. This first verse um, is the proof of yoga throughout all divine teachings. Up from earth's center through the seventh gate I rose and on the throne of Saturn sate and many knots unraveled by the road, but not the knot of human death and fate. And then what follows in this is the, one of the longest commentaries in the book in which Master unravels this uh, rather cryptic comment and shows how it shows Omar Khayyam's experience of the chakras and the implications of that and the difference between um, realization uh, within the body and the necessity to leave the physical body. It goes on um, for a long time. And it's very interesting how the masters uh, communicate their experiences. We were discussing before class started that um, uh, this... Uh, Joe, do you notice that one of the... The first one is off? Yeah, that was intentional. Oh, no, it's all right. It's just fine. I just thought it was broken again. Okay. I, pardon me? I thought you were talking about the overhead. No, no, I was talking about this. For those of you who last year took the Whispers from Eternity class and worked on memorizing the poem Samadhi, I'm among that number because I had known it at once at one time in my life and let it slide and learned it again and have repeated it rather diligently if not every day, then many days ever since then. And at the time that I was teaching the poem here, I didn't, I, I mean, I could sort of understand it, but not quite. But I've certainly found that repeating it day after day, it just begins to make more and more sense. The more you work with it, the more sense it makes, not for any intellectual reason, but because you just get into the, what can only be called the bob of it, the devotional vibration of it. And Master had a certain experience of cosmic consciousness, which he then put into words 
and his words are the doorway for us into that experience. And the words, by definition, could not possibly convey the experience, but they can open a little bit of a, a wormhole, you might call it, through, through infinity. And there's certainly an enormous amount of that same quality to this poem. And it, it takes another master to be able to instantly sort of say, oh, I know what he was looking at when he wrote that, because he could feel what he was looking at. So master takes these four lines and makes all this commentary explaining all the different aspects of the chakras and so on. Not that Omar Khayyam explained them, but that they were all implied by those four lines that he wrote, and Master knew that. And so, for us, in the same way that this poem, when Master told us to memorize it and say it every day, because it would help put us in tune with where we're trying to go, so these rubaiyat just repeated, even if we don't have... A necessarily um, a sense of driving intellectual relationship to it, it's vibrational. And the more you say it and the more familiar you become with it, the more you just somehow know what it means. And even if you don't know, as I say, because you understand the words differently, you understand the feeling of it differently. And this is perhaps nowhere more true than in this particular verse. Now there's an aspect that Swamiji writes about and he took the trouble to make an editorial comment. I think the editorial comment is where he talks about it. Um, but it's all through Master's commentary too, because I remember when Swami wrote this particular, worked on this particular commentary, he became very um, elated by, by the articulation that Master had put there. And it was this very simple thought that we spend most of our time stimulating the nerves where they, where they, the external side of it. We eat, we, um, we make our, ourselves feel good, we smell things, we taste, we, we look. And what we're really doing in all these ways is we're stimulating ourselves from the outside in, the nerve endings at the outside. And we try, conceivably, as he describes Frank Laubach trying, to see the divine in that experience. But what is really implied by all of yoga practice is that you can stimulate the nerves where they begin. And that the whole practice, especially of Kriya, especially of the higher Kriyas, when you reflect upon it, um, the second Kriya is, is just uh, the third Kriya. I always get the numbers. The one where you're going up and down the chakras is the one I'm talking about. Is that the second? Second, yeah. My brain. Um, uh, is just doing exactly that because why why take our experience secondhand is what Swami's saying. See what we're, we're doing is we're, we're going through this huge loop. The energy is internalized. We externalize it. We find it pleasurable or even uplifting, somewhat God reminding. We take that external stimulation, we re-internalize it, and then we try to use it to lift our consciousness. Whereas if we merely stimulate it from the inside, then we cut out that whole external reality. And so it's a, it was a very interesting way to begin to think about meditation and all of the practices that we do, especially the Kriya, especially the second Kriya, for those of you who know who have it, but even the first Kriya, or any meditation, just the Hong Sa meditation technique, where you're watching the breath flow up and down the spine. We tend to think of that meditation technique as one in which we are developing our concentration, but we are also, by that energy flowing up and down the spine, we're passing the energy up and down the chakras. And the chakras is the origin point 
of all that we experience externally. And if we, if we think, I mean, another dimension of the Holmes-Saw technique even would be to feel that energy in a sense caressing um, that, that, that inner sensory system. And if we can fulfill all this desire we have for satisfaction and for pleasure and all these different things without the intermediary of participating in the physical world, the very simple thing is think how free that makes us. It doesn't necessarily make us less involved in the world if that is not our inclination. I mean, what I mean is if it's not our karma to be less involved, we may still live a full and natural life, but how free we would be because we would no longer always be looking outside ourselves in order to find those experiences that our hearts crave. It's such a, it's such a perfect solution. Swamiji, went, as I say, when he wrote this commentary, he, because I think in his own nature, um, he was able to feel the implications of that more powerfully than the average person because of the depth of his meditation. And he could just suddenly see how it, it just cuts through all of the, the karmic entanglements. In the later chapter, um, one of the later quatrains, there's the line, which is a very important line, when it talks about the purpose of renunciation um, is not to despise the world, but merely to become detached from it. The purpose of renunciation is to develop detachment, not a negative attitude toward the world. So you can see that if, if you're not needing the experiences of your life to give you the inner feelings that you crave, then you can be so much more detached, which allows us to be much more selfless, which allows us to be much more appropriate because we don't have to think about our own needs in any situation. So it's, a, it's very, very powerful to meditate on that and to contemplate that. And it brings us back, those of you who, are, who were at the, um, the Guru Day retreat a couple of weeks ago, um, I'll remind you and explain it for those who weren't there. When we were talking about uh, Lahiri Mahashaya, we were talking about how Lahiri recommended Kriya as the solution for whatever ailed you. Whatever um, issue you would raise to him, he would always. his advice was always the same, to do more Kriyas. And the reason he advised you to do more Kriyas is because whatever you were experiencing of dissonance in your life was always a result of some um, internal restlessness or lack of satisfaction that would cause us to, to feel that whatever God was giving us in our lives was not what we wanted. We wanted something else. And so the best way to calm that restlessness is not just with right attitude and prayer or whatever it might be, but directly by, by calming the nerves in, where, where they happen, which is in the spine. Everything starts there. Master also has the statement in this particular uh, commentary, in this particular quatrain, that the only place that God can be experienced, um, the, the same nervous system constitutes the one and only path to spiritual enlightenment, regardless of your formal religious affiliation. It's, it's a, a strange uh, statement, isn't it? I think elsewhere he says, the only place God can be experienced is in the nervous system. And you, you, you expect a more poetic juxtaposition. God, the only place God can be experienced is in the nervous system. But what, what he's also describing here, what Omar Khayyam 
perceived and what Master extend, extensively comments on is what an extraordinary um, creation the human body is and the human nervous system. And there is all this uh, de- de- debate, you know, if dolphins and whales are really equal to people and it's sort of politically correct not to be chauvinistic about our species. <laughs> you know, we're supposed to sort of be equally enthusiastic about all species. But Master was very explicit about it. Only the human nervous system is capable of perceiving superconsciously. And it, therefore it's different. It has this ability to hold superconsciousness, whereas the other nervous systems don't. And so as souls evolve, they're animals until they have exhausted the possibility of animal bodies. Uh, a, a few Sundays ago, or maybe a year ago, I was talking about that, that how you make a body that allows you to experience the maximum potential of your own consciousness. And I mean, that's cockroaches, lizards, dogs, cats. And when you finish, evolution in an evolutionary sense, the potential for consciousness of that body, then you advance to another one. Until you finally, um, because the, the individuality is there even in the animal forms, us, you know, we, we're, we're animals, we finally get to the human level and then we have infinite possibilities. So we just stay here until we reach that infinite possibility. We don't go into other species until we finish this and then we can go on to the astral world. I read, just to digress, in... Uh, the chapter in the autobiography of the resurrection of Sri Yukteswar, the most intriguing line, which of course has always been there, but I noticed it this time, when he spoke of the fact that um, that they're animals in the astral world. He spoke of, you know, he named a number of animals, but you just get the general feeling that there's animals. And I know a lot of psychics talk about seeing your pets in the astral world, and sometimes when people have near-death experiences, they're met by their beloved dog or cat who may have predeceased them. And... Uh, But it says in the astral world, animals can change their forms and for a time become human and thus all beings commune together. Now, I just like tried to think about that. Does that mean that like the the dog, um, his evolution speeds up for a little while? He goes, he rushes to the last chapter and gets to hang around as an astral human being, but then has to go back and finish being a dog? I, I have to, it's on my list to ask Swami because it's just like, I don't know where to, I don't know where to put that. It, it, I mean, there's certain things in that chapter, like he talks about mermaids and leprechauns and fairies. And when I, these are the kinds of questions sometimes when I ask Swami, he gives me the eloquent response, which is, you know, it's just like, who can make sense out of it from here? But my, it's interesting, isn't it? Swamiji, in that context, you may remember a few years ago when he came, he'd had some notable experience with a dog. And so he was talking about dogs, and he just, he said he observed that dogs, and by extension all animals, as he put it, are just people. Meaning that you have the same fundamental ego structure that's just expressing in a more limited way. And it's just that, you know, we're, we're all this, this nugget of individuality, seeking ever-increasing awareness. And if you're at the dog level, you're just at the dog level, but you're not fundamentally different than you are as a human 
in the way your system works. It's just that it's much more sophisticated by the time you're human. It's fascinating when you, I mean, many of you are much more involved with animals than I am, but it's very fun to sort of just see them as fur people. When Swami t- told that, when Swami told that story about the dog, I can't possibly imitate it, but I watched it on a video, and he, for a moment, imitated a dog's face. And I was watching it on video, and I froze it. And he just totally entered into dog consciousness. And, of course, he had a human face, but he looked totally like a dog because he just went there. He just went to what it would be like to be a dog. And he was a dog because it's all vibrational. Very interesting, isn't it? And that, of course, some dogs are really at the end of being dogs, and so their faces look much more like humans. You see it all the time. So I'm going to remark that monkeys look like fallen humans because they're so, they're so, some of them are so expressive, it's just uncanny. In fact, I, I saw some little bit of a documentary once about some unique gorilla or ape, one of those kinds of animals who his whole life walked upright. <laughs> he never, he was in, he was in uh, with civilized people most of the time, but he never walked down. He always walked straight up. He <laughs> was clearly with some, someone who just got punished and had to go back, but he wasn't really going to quite give in to it. <laughs> Master said, you only do that for one lifetime. If the, you, rarely, you rarely go back to the animal level, except when you're just transitioning out of it, and then you can waffle for a while. But once you've really transitioned out of it, he said, you'll only get, uh, if you fall, you'll only fall usually for one lifetime and then you come out again. And that's, you know, in extreme circumstances that that happens. Bizarre, isn't it? It's bizarre on one level and on the other level it's not bizarre at all because it's all just this one extremely orderly integrated system. That's sort of what this chapter, this quatrain to me was about. It's just like one extremely orderly system. And... Uh, Omar Khayyam, back there in a completely different context, just meditated, prayed, did yoga, went internally, found the same thing that Yogananda found, that the sages have found, that Teresa of Avila found. Everyone just finds the same thing because that's the way it works, folks. And even as Master said, the dog, um, when he's hungry and he, he wants to concentrate on the food, he, he, he gets a line in his, eye, his brow right here because that's where the concentration is. You just find it. So our Master said... Oddly, oddly, but not necessarily, that if you could only have one technique on a desert island, if you took energization with you, you would, quote, discover all the others. Because it's just, it's inherent, it's just there. Fascinating. Any comments or thoughts? Okay, this, this is a beautiful verse, number 32. There was a door to which I found no key. There was a veil past which I could not see. Some little talk a while of me and thee there seemed, and then no more of thee and me. And that's a wonderful one just to say over and over again, isn't it? Because that's often how we feel, isn't it? The door without the key, the veil that we can't see through, and this sense of separation, and then the promise that at a certain point, even though there is this sense of separation, that the sense of separation will go away. And they, we talk about it, he talks about it a lot in this section. And I won't go into it greatly here because there's others. Um, I was thinking again of the Samadhi poem, Thou art I, I am thou, knowing, knower, known as one. And just, just as simple as that. And, and so there, and he, he talks about it, I'll, I'll just go on to it because 
It's the one where he talks about annihilation, but it's a little further, I think, the nothingness. Then to the rolling heaven itself I cried, asking, what lamp had destiny to guide her little children stumbling in the dark? And a blind understanding, heaven replied. Swami remarks that this may seem like a very uncompassionate remark on the part of God, but the, the comment really comes out of the compassion of Omar Khayyam because once the saints begin to see this world for what it really is, and then they look back and watch people looking everywhere for satisfaction except the one place where it will be found, which is doing everything they can to stimulate their, their experiences externally and doing nothing to strengthen their experiences internally. And so Omar Khayyam says, what help is there for these people? And basically heaven says, not much. You know, just this sort of blind understanding that just gradually causes us to crash against the walls again and again and have these karmic experiences again and again and then very slowly and very slowly. Um, this is, we, we gradually get free. But he also talks, uh, th- this, the outcry of Omar Khayyam on our behalf is also an indication of the compassion that the great ones feel for us. Because these masters return again and again for no reason except just to take care of us. They don't have to come back to this world. This is what, every, every week in the Festival of Light we repeat this, greater can no love be than this, from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind. Such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. And then there's the other section where we say, who are we in reality? For what end were we made? The devotee asks that question. And then the divine answers. Ever and again, through your awakened sons, the answer comes. And so even though this quatrain asks the question, what is there to lead? And the answer is just this blind understanding, this non-understanding that humans have. But the real answer is the return of the great ones to tell us. Because we don't have ourselves to lead us. We have to look to those who are wise. And it, it also says in here that one of the first steps toward wisdom is to realize that my own understanding is blind. And that try as I might, I, I can just keep working at trying to figure it out, but there's just a point at which you, one just has to say, I, can't, I really can't do this on my own. And humility is so fundamental to success in any endeavor, especially the spiritual, but really in all endeavors. Uh, because, especially humility in, in several ways, humility in the sense of really realizing that I don't understand, um, what was I going to say that, is... Like we get this false, this false pride that, that causes us to think that I have to do this myself. You know, whether, whatever the, the task may be, the job that we're trying to do or uh, solving our personal problems or coping with whatever God has given us, instead of expanding our consciousness to include other human beings or upward to include God, we feel that what is really being asked of us is that we do it ourselves. And the blindness of our understanding sabotages us in many ways. That's why uh, in the autobiography of a yogi, um, the very first line, it says, you know, the, the, the 
salient creature, uh, characteristic of Indian culture, I'm not quoting it exactly, is the search for eternal verities in the concomitant, and almost everyone says guru-disciple relationship, but it actually says disciple-guru relationship. This is very interesting because the guru is always the same, but the disciple has to become engaged or else there's no relationship. The guru cannot put that relationship onto the disciple. The disciple has to come first and then attract the guru. And so there has to come this, understa- this understanding that, that I don't understand. And once we sort of get into that flow, actually life becomes so much more relaxing because there's this very false idea that we're supposed to know what we're doing here and that it's a sign of strength to act like you know what you're doing. I remember Davy's mother said, just she was on her deathbed, and she was just reflecting with Davy about life, and she was a very sweet and humble woman, and she said to Davy, I always thought when I, would get, when I got older, I would get wiser, but I didn't. <laughs> it just was so dear, and in, in a sense, a very wise remark. You know, we have this thought that now that we're old, we should be wise. But that's part of our blindness. Until we're self-realized, we're not wise. We're always children. And that's what um, this one says to me, that we're children compared to the saints. No matter what we can do outwardly, even no matter what we can do inwardly, we're just really nothing until we can find God. Remember even Sri Yukteswar? When he, I mean, uh, Master, when he went back to see Sri Yukteswar and... Uh, I think it was when Master said to Sri Yukteswar, oh, I'd like to buy a nice rug. And Sri Yukteswar said, why? What do I need with a rug? And Paramahansa Yogananda says, all of a sudden, he just was back to being just a boy in his Master's ashram. He'd had all these years of being the guru in America and everyone looking up to him, but he, there he was. He was at his Master's feet and he was just his little boy again. But you see what freedom there is in that. Just to be Master's little child, Rajasi, always called himself Master's little one. I'm just your little one, just your little boy. And Master would say to him, you know where your power comes from, don't you? And Rajasi said, yes, sir, I know it comes from you. It's just that, that very simple, the more advanced you get, the more you realize you don't have anything of your own, that it's all just becoming an open window. And, and the more you become like that, the more you realize, how could I possibly claim credit for the sun? That's what it is. The sun is shining through you and you're supposed to get all important because the sun is shining through you. It just appears ludicrous. But in our blindness, we think otherwise until we become free. Any comments or questions or thoughts? Number 34 says, Then to this earthen bowl did I adjourn my lip, the secret well of life to learn. And lip to lip it murmured, while you live, drink, for once dead, you never shall return. All of these are all very esoteric, aren't they? And they're all about these events, states of superconsciousness. And this is, Master writes us, this is moving from Nirbhakalpa Samadhi back into Sabhakalpa Samadhi. In other words, from being, um, wait, do I have that right? From Sabhakalpa to Nirbhakalpa Samadhi, from the time of just uh, being in a state of awareness that you're completely unconscious of the external world, to be able to hold, as Master describes it, that complete awareness of God while you interact in the world. This is not a problem most of us have to face. We always, in fact, used to always joke in the early years of Ananda, when we were all first learning about these things, 
there would be people who would be extremely felt it was extremely important to understand these distinctions of the many different shades of samadhi and it, to some of us it always just seemed like this is not really the issue right now but uh, nonetheless the mind gets interested but there is a lesson here because it is to learn to see God in creation and to not feel that there's any separation between any aspect of our lives you know this is the the negative side of renunciation and this is the chapter where it has that that renunciation is essential to the spiritual path its purpose however is to help us overcome attachment and not to prove our love for the creator by abhorring his handiwork and so it gets there's this very fine line that you have to walk when you become a devotee which is really it is the difference between sabhakalpa and nirbhakalpa samadhi when you reach the highest state of samadhi you you see the divine everywhere you don't have to separate yourself from it in order to feel it in lower stages you do and and as above so below and when we model our lives we have this very fine line that we have to walk because renunciation is essential on the spiritual path we can't get to that state of freedom by merely indulging our senses we have to learn discipline and there's other quatrains here that make such a point there's just a point you, it's not for weaklings willpower and devotion master says elsewhere willpower and devotion willpower and devotion and courage to really follow the path we, we must become renunciates we have to renounce all the attachments of the ego all the desires of the ego all the comforts of the ego sister Gyanamata talks about that so strongly she said God sends us tests that have no other purpose except just to discipline our ego attachment there's no logic to it you can't rationalize it out you don't even know why it comes to you. it has just the purpose of breaking the ego's desire that says I want this I have to have that I'm only comfortable if I have the this is what I want to just become very detached you know, now it's not popular um, to, to, to do the kind of austerities that have always characterized religious life but you have all the stories of you know monastics flagellating themselves and living on very limited amounts of food and sleeping sitting up and using a hard stone for a pillow and throwing themselves into the thorny bushes and all of these different things which for the average person just seem crazy but they're not crazy at all if it's a genuine inspiration from inside yourself because what you're trying to do is you're trying to teach yourself by these admittedly exaggerated means um, detachment from everything that you normally think that you want that's what the Bhagavad Gita says what's day to the worldly person is night to the yogi what's night to the yogi is day to the worldly person you know luxury the praise of people great wealth great worldly power all of these things are things that the average worldly mind the mind that's committed to the world as primary reality quests after but the devotee looks at it and thinks why would I want that there's a, a very wealthy man that I, I that I read about I mean uh, in the Time magazine he was invited to this huge meeting of other wealthy people for some reason or another he's one of the wealthiest men in the world but he's extremely eccentric he owns one pair of shoes you know he just has done nothing that nothing at all with his wealth he, and his answer was you can only wear one at a time you know it's just like why would I need more than that a very different sort of way of thinking about things I personally own more than one pair of shoes so I can't put myself out there but nonetheless 
there's still, you reach a certain point where you realize it's, it's not, that's not what's going to make me happy. I need to become detached from that. I need to renounce this inclination of my ego to pamper itself. In whatever form that takes, Master did not advocate uh, uh, extreme external austerities. He advocated a, a more moderate external path, but there was nothing moderate about the internal path that he advocated, and we mustn't fool ourselves with this and think that we can get away with it. And so the, the um, uh, the, the, the razor's edge we have to walk is to enjoy God in creation but not to be dependent upon the creation in order to see God. Yes, Marilyn? The Pardon me? The No, it would be exactly the same thing. It would be to just set yourself some kind of a goal. The question was about sadhus in India who do extreme physical austerities. You know, Swamiji talked about, for example, ones who resolve never to sleep or hold a hand in the air or something. I don't remember where Swami wrote this. Maybe it was in a talk. Maybe it was he wrote it. But he talked about seeing at the Kumbh Mela many sadhus who had done extreme things, and most of them were grotesque from those austerities and it was hard to feel inspired and just when Swamiji was thinking this is a grotesque practice a a monk came by who had followed similar austerities for many years Uh, he'd never lain down for you know 25 years he always was slept standing up and most of the men who'd done that where their legs were very distended but this man was perfectly formed and radiant and it just whatever it was it agreed with him and strange as it might seem to others for him it brought him into a greater state of uh, spiritual awareness once Swami was asked how much austerity is enough and his answer was that which you can do with joy he said at the point at which you no longer feel an inner joy from what you're doing then you need to back up a little bit until you find that place and of course that's not the same as pleasure because it may not be pleasurable, but nonetheless you can feel great joy because you know you're doing what you should be doing. All of it is just to to go against the natural tendencies and to train yourself to be detached from those natural tendencies. I mean, just think about anything. All the little things that we feel we have to need, oh, I can't sleep unless I have the right pillow, and I don't like that kind of food, and this doesn't really agree with me, and oh, it's a little cold in here, and I don't like it when it's hot, and the seat is too hard, and oh, my elbow hurts, and... No, it's just constant, never-ending. It's never-ending. All of us. You know, I have all my little routines that have to be just so. But really, it is, we're just so bound by that. And, you know, you can discover if it's all there and it's all right to have it. I mean, if it's coming to you and it's just part of your life, it, sometimes you do yourself more damage by trying to eliminate it. But at the same time, we mustn't ever think that our happiness or well-being really depends on it. Remember that man who said to Master, I cheated death three times with carrot juice? And Master answered, look, when death comes calling for you, you could bathe in the stuff and it won't save you. (laughs) Meaning, don't kid yourself. And so even as we, Master said, you know, don't pamper yourself too much. Also, his advice for child raising, he said, don't pamper your children too much. Let them be a little cold. Let them be a little hungry. No, don't always just feed them when they're hungry and put sweaters on them when they're cold. He didn't mean to torture them, but he meant to encourage in them a kind of wholesome stoicism where they don't feel that every little discomfort has to be assuaged. 
And sometimes it's good for us. You know, you find yourself without a sweater instead of rushing to get it. Just um, endure the cold a little bit or the heat without complaining. And something is given to you you don't quite like. Just accept it. Practice. You know, Swami can go to the dentist without Novocaine. That's a little more than most of us can do. But, you know, maybe we can um, have a little thing on our plate and eat it even if we don't like it. I know Swamiji doesn't like beets. He says himself now, he says, I am a finicky eater. He said, there's no point in just really pretending anything but that. I am a finicky eater. And once I was determined that he could learn to like beets if they were cooked in the right manner. So I, I made, I mean, with his permission, I made an attempt. And of course, he didn't like them at all, but he said, I don't want to be bound by my likes and dislikes. So he put a little bit on his plate and tried to enjoy it. <laughs> But just that simple statement, I don't want to be bound by my likes and dislikes. Every so often, just break them. Just do something you think you can't do. Just for the sake of developing your willpower. I don't mean, you know, eat something you're allergic to. I'm talking about likes and dislikes. All right? And next one. I think the vessel that with fugitive articulation answered... Once did live in merry make, and the cold lip I kissed, how many kisses might it take and give? Now that, you really have to be intuitive to know what on earth that one meant. Swami himself says in some of them, he just couldn't figure out how Master made the leap, but anyway, he just accepted it. And he's also, what he's saying here is that realization can be experienced while we're still in a physical body, if we cease to identify with matter. And so, so we, again, it's always about not where we are, but what we're identifying with. It's very good. You know we don't follow all these rules, but the kinds of things Master suggests sometimes is, he says, don't tell anyone your age, don't celebrate your birthday, don't ever, don't accept, don't, don't use words that says, I am tired. Say, this body needs rest. So that, that you always keep a little bit of a distinction between the body you're living in and yourself. And, and watch all the little subconscious ways in which you tend to just define yourself by your body. It, it, those things may seem small, but those habits are strong. And just see it as somebody, you know, Francis used to call it Brother Donkey. And it was a, it was a nice way to look about it. It was something that he carried around with him. Um, but we can experience the divine even while we're here, and our physical body is not separate from the divine. But it doesn't define us. We are one with the infinite, and we merely live in this space. Swamiji once recommended, once said, you know, next time you're just washing your arm, he said, look at this arm and just imagine it as being cremated. (laughs) Just think of it being sort of pushed into the fire and just turned to ashes, and that you will be somewhere else when that happens. Just imagine watching it, and all of this great care and concern for it just... Every day, think about it, just burning up. And just see yourself having entered this body and leaving this body and entered many bodies and leaving all of those bodies. Don't feel either limited or identified with it. And, yes, Brenda. I'm sorry, what did you say? Did I by accident? Oh, for once. Oh, that was where... Pardon me, what was the question? I'm sorry. I did read it, but what, 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 was, what was the... I didn't comment on that phrase, though, so what was the question? Well, 
that was he, but the way he explains that means once you're really free, you'll never reincarnate in the physical body again. So you have to, you might as well experience what it has to offer now because you're on your way out and you're not coming back, is, is the way I read that about Omar Khayyam himself. Once you're free, you're really free. But one of the ways that you become free is that you enter Nirvikalpa Samadhi, which is that you live in your physical body without regard for it, without being inhibited by its presence. And then you can cast it off forever. As long as there's any sense of identification to it, you will have to keep returning to it. But then finally, you will reach the time that you will die and you will never come back to it. And then that's also, uh, you know, part of the implication of all of the system of reincarnation and the astral and the causal bodies, all the different things he talks about. Okay, any other comments? Oh, this one I love. This is 36. For in the marketplace, one dusk of day, I watch the potter thumping his wet clay, and with its all obliterated tongue, it murmured, gently, brother, gently pray. <laughs> Don't you just love that? Master just explains that when we're about to be reincarnated and our body is being made by God and we see all the karma that we're going to have to face, we sort of beg for a little mercy. <laughs> but it's also dear because... Um, the masters are telling us, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. The way you feel is just normal. But also, they, they speak in many other places in the, the commentary of just how inexorable the karmic law is and how really no matter what you do, you really can't escape it. And it, doesn't, it really doesn't serve us once the time has come for the piper to be paid, which is that we're starting in, in our next incarnation and all the unfinished business of the old one is just right there in front of us to deal with. And then all of a sudden we wish for things to be different. You know, how often, isn't that the way our lives work? When, when we're, we're setting the karma in motion, we just go right ahead and do it. But then when all of a sudden when it has to be paid back, all of a sudden we have all these reasons why it's not fair, isn't it? And believe me, any disappointment that you experience in your life is, was set in motion by actions that you took at one point, by wrong attitudes, wrong decisions, Whatever it might be, or just by the, the just by the commitment that you made to become free, this is what Sister Gyanamata was saying. Tests come to us that have no other purpose except just to break our ego's attachment to itself, and and this tendency of the mind to want it to work out differently, to just not being willing to accept what is ours. We we spend so much energy rebelling against what is. This is the whole. Um, again, the story of the Festival of Light, that whole first cycle with the bird. What is the first thing that happens with the bird? God says to him, these are the rules of the game. This is what you're supposed to do. The bird goes out, and in his blind understanding, he has these experiences, and he likes the way it feels. And he says, no, that's really not the way it is. This is the way it is. I know that this is what God told me. He said I had this mission to fulfill, this generous uh, life to live, to share with others. But what else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself? And so the bird enters the second stage, which is first, as, he, as it's commented in here, there was a time when we lived, um, a couple of quatrains ago, when we, there was a time when even this physical body was part of the divine. But we got lost from that, didn't we? And the, the little bird is flying around on this mission from spirit, but he says, no, 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 I want to do it my way. And so it enters that stage, which is called the revolt. And really, that's what all of us are in, whether we 
you know, articulated all the time or not, but to some extent or another, we resist what happens to us. There it is. Life is just like that. This is the way what God has given us. This is what our own karma has created for us. And instead of embracing it with enthusiasm, with the absolute understanding that this is the way it's meant to be, we revolt against it. And we suffer. And, and we suffer enormously because of that revolt. We're just thinking that if we say, oh, gently, brother, please, gently, that somehow that, that's going to affect all this energy that's put in motion. It doesn't. And that's where the bird moves from the revolt to sort of trying to dictate what reality should be to the quest where the bird actually tries to understand how things actually work without trying to impose upon the world around you this blind understanding. Do you see? It's, it's an amazing little journey that's described every week when we talk about it. And it's all through this section, especially in this one, Gently, Brother. That's the revolt. We have to come out of that. We have to just go into the quest. All right, Lord, this is the karma I've set in motion. How do I get out of it? And then just do it without complaining. We may not have the energy to do it. There's, there's, there's two different levels of delusion. One is the delusion where we say, I know what I should do, I'm just not ready to do it. And the other that says, no, 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 that's not what I have to do. Right? It's not really, it's not really up to me to change, it's up to them to change. You know, this is not really right, this shouldn't have happened this way, it's not the way it is. And that's your, your Swamiji once, once was very strong with this man. He says, you're not only ignorant, he said to him, this, this man really deserved it, it's very rare for Swami. He said, you're not merely ignorant, you're double, you're double ignorant, because you're ignorant of your ignorance, he said, and therefore we can't even help you. <laughs> and so it's, it's, not, it's all right to say, I don't have the strength, Lord, you have to help me. I know what's right, but I'm not ready. Even uh, St. Augustine said, make me a saint, but not yet. <laughs> right? It's all right to say that. I will be good, but not yet. But don't say, I'm going to get to God-realization by some method that isn't, that isn't the true method. That's not the real teaching. Everything happens by the will of God, but not this. Everything is karmically ordained according to what is right for me, but not this. I mean, just think how often we do that, whether subconsciously or consciously. And think how much, how useless it is. It's pushing on both sides of the door at the same time. You know, God is trying to push us through this way and we're trying to push this way and everything just freezes and we wonder why nothing is happening. That's why we say every week, move from the revolt to the quest. Ask yourself, am I in the revolt or am I in the quest? You don't have to be enlightened, you just have to genuinely want to know. That comes up in later quatrains too, the difference between constructive doubt and negative doubt. Okay, let's take a little break. The question is, the illustrations in this book, the illustrations are modern and were created for this edition. Um, the, the artist's name is no doubt listed somewhere. I don't know. She's not a person that I know. So, Yeah, she's not a person who's part of Ananda. She's someone that, um, I believe, Prahlad, who was uh, in charge of putting this book together, met, and he really, really liked them, and Swami liked them, so she created them. Um, she, she doesn't. She sort of does a backward style. I think it's, she makes everything black and then scratches the paint, the picture out of the black. Um, and I don't know what her basic medium is, but they're very unusual. There, she, you know. And so I, I, I've been told that she may do more for the next edition of the book. Uh, let's see. 
In all probability she did because they certainly don't look like anything that would be, cre- they, they look like they were individually created. You know. It could, it could, yeah, well, uh, Nirmala did the cover. But this is just, it's, these are, these could well be um, close-ups of things that are in pictures. I'm sorry, it says here Debbie Hanley did the cover. Okay, whatever. Okay, but the drawings were done by someone else. The cover wasn't done by the same person. And Perlaud was the art director for the whole thing. And it's actually, you know, it's the most beautiful book that Ananda puts out by far. So it was really a well-done piece of work. This was the first, you know, this was, as I said at the beginning of this class, this was the fulfillment of an instruction from his guru from 50 years before. So Swamiji really felt that it should have everything that we could possibly give it. Okay. I don't understand the illustrations myself. And I have trouble feeling the relationship. But Swami, I asked Sean about them because they're reprinting it. And I asked what the intention was. And he said, Swami is very fond of them and actually is thinking of trying to put in more. I have trouble finding the inspiration in them. But I have to confess, I have never really studied them at great length. I mean, her talent is unmistakable. And Swami felt that she too. And well, sometimes, like this one was inspired by quatrains 8 and 14. So... Yeah. So it's confusing. You would have to make a private study of it. You know, a separate study of it to try to see how they relate. They are they are um, appropriate, very appropriate in the sense that, that they're quite symbolic. They're not at all literal. Um, yeah, and th- there's another illustrated version in which the pictures are quite literal and my favorite of all was that one of the quatrains speaks of God's left hand, and then there's an illustration of a left hand. It's just so. Certainly, you, <laughs> these are a lot better than that because there, there's something subtle in them. And I mean, when I said I haven't tuned into them, I must also confess that I've never actually tried. But uh, pardon, yeah. Okay. How discreet I've become in my old age, don't you think so? Okay. We're going to bury the hatchet, we're going to be friends, and so therefore we only speak kind things now. (laughs) Shall we go on? I'm going to skip a few quatrains because I never can do all 15, and there's a few that I particularly love. So I want to go to 38. I love this one. One moment in annihilation's waste, one moment of the well of life to taste, the stars are setting, and the caravan starts for the dawn of nothing. Oh, make haste. Isn't that wonderful? I just absolutely love that. And, and Swami talks in here, and Master talks of the state of nirvana when there is nothing, which is then after that moment passes, then you feel the bliss. Elsewhere, I believe it's in the book Superconsciousness, Swami talks about when you reach a, when you first touch into that state of superconsciousness and realize that there is no reality but yourself he said there is a terrifying moment of awesome loneliness and then the realization of the bliss isn't that a, isn't that a beautiful thought i mean who 
And, and it's that fear of that annihilation and that loneliness that keeps, it, keeps us back from that. Even that song we sing every Sunday, Long we feared to face your love, lest our emptiness it prove. And if we just really have to see what the divine is compared to this little life we live, and really accept that all of this that we cling to so devotedly is just an illusion. You know, just give me back my dream. It's how the subconscious says, and it doesn't even let us go there. But the masters speak of this, this moment of, of darkness, then comes the light. Then comes the bliss, if we just have the courage to go there. And the stars are setting, master says, also means that the, the, the astrology no longer applies. Karma is over. The stars are setting is not just that it's night, but astrology, the, the external pattern of the heavens is the internal pattern of the chakras and the karma in the chakras. So when the stars are setting, it means all the, the karma is resolved. You're not set anymore. The caravan is setting out for the dawn of nothing. Make haste. Isn't it just a wonderful combination? The poetry of it is so thrilling. I like just the idea of setting out for the dawn of nothing and hurrying to get there. That's the spirit that we have to have. So... I like this one too. This is number 39. How long, how long, in infinite pursuit of this and that, endeavor and dispute, better be merry with the fruitful grape than sadden after none or bitter fruit. And he's trying to spare us. Look to the divine, otherwise this world will become so unsatisfying to us and we'll become, this malaise will set in. So it's, you, you sadden after nothing. I mean, there's just nothing in this world to hold you. How many people are just sad because there's nothing that attracts them? It just didn't come out the way it was meant to come out. I was, somehow I was just feeling that. I was sitting uh, in the chair in our bedroom just reading God is for Everyone. And I had the picture in my mind of my mother who passed away a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago. and um, Just thinking of her as a child with all of the hopes and aspirations and then just thinking how her life turned out. I mean, because she's lived and died. It wasn't that her life was by any means a disaster. She was very ill for a number of years at the end. But I was just thinking how it just... Um, we have so little control over it. We have all these ideas of what it's going to be. And then something happens. In her case, she was diagnosed with Parkinson's and then for 15 years she had to sort of deal with Parkinson's. It just wasn't in the picture. It's not the same as to be joyous and detached. Yeah, and that's what he's trying to say. So it's, it's not at all the same. Sometimes people pretend to be spiritual when they're really just sad and bitter. And sometimes the, the spiritual path is really bad for people because they get to put this overlay of, of so-called spirituality over what is really just sadness and bitterness. This is where all those previous quatrains about coming back to the physical body and trying to give it bliss and trying to realize that the body is also can experience bliss. Not that in the senses, but you can't be sad and bitter. It's not the same as being detached and being free. So it's a very, it's a very tricky business because it's just this fine line. That's why it's detachment, not aversion. That's one of the previous quatrains. The purpose of renunciation is not for you to abhor the creation. It's for you to become detached from it. Because then when you're detached from it, you can love freely because you have nothing to lose. See, this, this withdrawal 
which looks like renunciation, is really because you, you fear so much being hurt that you won't even enter into it. And many people appear to be renunciates, but they're not renunciates at all. They're very scared. But you have to be fearless. Fear not the loving. All the things of Swami just come together. You know, uh, give life your heart, bless everything that's grown, fear not the loving, all this world's your own. Let come who will, but if they all turn home, the goal still awaits you, go on alone. And that's a very powerful song. That particular line, those lines, fear not the loving, all this world's your own. That's what a real renunciate is. Swami described it in... This then to me is renunciation, he said, to kick aside limitation and to embrace infinity. And the, 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 the fearful so-called renunciate is just totally contracted and on themselves. So it's the dawn of nothing. What is there to fear anyway? It's just a magic shadow show. Okay. That's a very important one. <laughs> As if they all aren't. Okay. You know, my friends, how long since, and I love the way they, this one is one of, again, a favorite too in the way they phrase this. You know, my friends, how long since in my house for a new marriage I did make carouse, divorced old barren reason from my bed and took the daughter of the vine to spouse. <laughs> and of course, this is him saying that you really can't think your way to divine awareness. And we try so hard to think our way. We want it all figured out. And then it's, you see there's the little bird and he's flying. And night fell. And the little bird says, How can I fly in this darkness? And to me, every time I read that, that's like everything was going fine because I had it all figured out. I, I floated with the wind. I had it pretty together. But then all of a sudden, this totally unexpected thing happens, which is it gets dark. In other words, I can't figure it out anymore. I can't see where I'm going. I, my little systems have broken down. I don't know what's happening. And the night whispers, surrender to me. Peace awaits you in the unknown. Oh, <gasps> Really? Now, how, what gives you the courage to do that is when you let go of your reason, and not, not your reason, but you let go of your need to be able to rationalize it all out because you're trying to step into a realm where that part of you can't go, just by definition. You can't take it there because it's a realm that transcends it. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, defy it. it doesn't, it's not like it's unreasonable. It just transcends it. Reason is, is deductive. You put the pieces together. Intuition just simply knows. You just know that it's true. You don't even know why it's true. It just is true. But reason has to find all these ways. You can only go so far. And so when the devotee reaches a certain state, you divorce reason. Because you don't need it anymore. It's just an old, barren thing. And this is where Swami says, has this wonderful line, Master has it, reason is barren. How can wisdom be its offspring? It's a colorful way to put it. Reason is a mental faculty. Intuition is of the soul. Very, very... And balance, learning that balance, of course, is a lifetime pursuit. Because people... Merely because what you're suggesting is unreasonable doesn't mean it's intuitive. You know, Intuition generally stands up to reason, but intuition can stand... Can, can, intuition comes without reason. One of the reasons that Master's book needs editing, as Swami put it, is because Master makes so many intuitive leaps. He'll just go from point to point without filling in all the understanding that, that the more plodding minds like ours need in order to get how those two things are related. 
And, and that's what Swami helped do. He helped fill in some of the blanks or, or took the very uh, truncated little phrases that Master made and expanded them out a little bit so that we could follow it with our reason. But still, this book is so intuitive. That's what we were really talking about when we were saying, you read these and you understand them, but not exactly with your mind. You just get intuitively what it means. You know, the dawn of nothing. Make haste. Now, that, what does that phrase really mean? But you can kind of feel what that means. And you feel it with this exhilaration that's much more than if it were very uh, long and wordy. You just get it. It comes to you that way. Number 41. Now, the next three are all about dealing with doubt, and I wanted to be sure and get to these. Okay, for is and is not, though with rule and line, and up and down without, I could define, I yet in all I only cared to know was never deep in anything but wine. Now, the English of that is not that easy to understand, but the meaning is you gather all this knowledge about spirituality, and at first you think it really matters. You, know, you really think it's very important to get the distinction between nirvikalpa and sabhakalpa samadhi and you just want it all exactly worked out. What is the difference between a jiva and mukta and a siddha? And, I mean, Swami tells us all these things and you can read it. He has it all in the path and it's interesting to know. But there's, there's a point on the spiritual path where you think that what you're, try, what you're going to get is going to come by understanding all those different things. And so you study and you read and you feel you have to read this one and compare it to that one and look at this one and compare it to that one and see how these two relate to each other and all these different things and you get very more and more erudite. But then there just comes a point when you realize it just doesn't matter because that's not really where your satisfaction is going to come from. And a lot of times it's a way of not really getting into the game. It's a little bit like Arjuna's reluctance to get into the battle. Not exactly the same, but close to that. When Arjuna wants Krishna to explain it all to him and make it all right, and uh, and he has all these ideas in his head about what it is to be, what what would be righteous action, and Krishna just says to Arjuna, he said, "You're using words that sound wise to cover the actions and the attitudes of a coward. You just lack courage, Arjuna. That's why you're doing all this." And a lot of times, our our obsession with intellectuality and getting all these facts together is because we just really don't want to get into the real battle of overcoming our ego, just like Arjuna didn't want to. I'd rather just think about this and feel good because I'm thinking about it, which, believe me, is better than not thinking about it at all. But at a certain point, it just doesn't matter. I know sometimes Swamiji, over the years, people would ask certain questions, and sometimes he'd answer very patiently. Sometimes he'd be very what other people would perceive as rude because he just knew it was pointless to answer those questions and it was better to get them to stop asking them. Which, let me go on because that comes later. It says, um, well, this is number 42. And lately by the tavern door agape came stealing through the dusk an angel shape bearing a vessel on his shoulder and he bid me taste of it and twas the grape. (laughs) And he's saying there that the grace of God comes, and that's how the power—that's how the power is really transmitted. It's not from all this thinking, 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 defining this, getting that straight, getting all of it lined up. And then comes the last one. Um, the, the, it's the commentary to this last one that really explains it. Yes, this is it. The grape that can, with logic absolute, the two and seventy 
jarring sex confute the subtle alchemist that in a trice life's leaden metal into gold transmutes. And this is really about how to resolve doubt. When ecstasy comes, Master said, everything goes. What we seek so painstakingly with our reason, the, in the angel shape comes and just gives us this experience and then we know. Many years ago there was this man who was actually doing an interview for Swamiji for a magazine. And he, he sort of also, as people are wont to do when they have that opportunity, suddenly the, the line between the magazine and the personal counseling gets a little blurred. And, uh, but that's sometimes the best way to give the interview anyway. But this man said uh, two things that were very notable. First, he said, he, he said that he was a Gemini and that he always needed to keep finding new teachings and new things to, to keep him interested. And uh, Swamiji's answer was, he said, yes. He said, going in circles does give one a certain sense of accomplishment. The bigger the circle, the bigger the sense of accomplishment. <laughs> and he, was, he just advised this thought that if I can just keep defining it and learning more and gathering more information, then somehow I'll, I'll find what I'm seeking in all that information gathering. And when the inspiration begins to wane in one field of study, well, I'll just rush over into another field of study and the, the picture of just going in a big circle and just keep coming back to right where you started because that what you're really seeking won't come there. And then he asked the other also very revealing question. He said to Swamiji, what is the answer to doubt? What is the solution to doubt? Swami said, peace. The experience of peace is the solution to your doubts. Now obviously this man was trying to solve his doubts by gathering more information and Swami was telling him You'll never solve your doubts that way. You'll only solve them when you have an experience of a level beyond your doubts. Now, it's, it's a catch-22 that people do get caught in. And, you know, the doubt, people who live in doubt live in a particular kind of hell. But it's, it's again, it's one of those situations where you have to understand, you have to have the self-honesty and the faith, of course. It's, you know, this is, this is, again, it's the razor's edge. But you have to have the humility to listen to those who are wiser than you and, and, and accept that this way I'm trying to solve my problem is not going to solve it. And not make a, a dogma of what is really your delusion. And so if, if those who are guiding you, whom you may have reason to trust, say, just don't follow that path anymore, just meditate more, do more devotion, you know, do more kirtan, do more japa, do more service. You're just not going to get where you're going with that kind of constant, oh, but I will do it as soon as you solve these, as soon as you give me the answer to these next few questions. I've, I've had on, on infrequent, but more than one occasion, had people in classes to whom I finally said, I'm really not going to answer any more of your questions because there was just no, there was no future in it. It was, I would give them a good solid try and then I would just say, um, I just, I'm really not going to answer any more of your questions because it's not going to give you anything of what you're seeking. And I wouldn't be serving you by even pretending that it will, by keeping on to answer. Now that's what, what uh, Master calls here um, negative doubt. The kind of negative doubt that really isn't seeking answers but is seeking only just to keep the mind agitated because there's a fear of that state of peace which would actually solve the doubts. And so we have to be a little careful in our own minds. And you can hear it if you listen. 
and and it's it's things like before the answer is finished, you have another question. There was a, a, a woman in our community who's no longer with us many years ago, and she was just so good at that that even while Swami would be giving her the answer, as Swami himself put it, she was formulating her next question, so she could never hear any of the answers that were offered. Her, her whole mental process was about her questions. It was never really about his answers. And so if your mind is going, but, but, even as the answer is being offered to you, you have to stop and ask yourself, am I really seeking answers? Do, I mean, do I, do I really want to stop doubting, or is my real attachment just to being in this agitated state. And you see, sometimes that's because we're like Arjuna before we're entering in the battle. I, I, I was remembering a, an incident I had with someone many years ago, and Swamiji was writing one of his books at that time, and his habit has always been to share the manuscript with various people, and in this case it was a particular niche, particular subject, and so certain people who knew more about that subject were getting the manuscript, and one such person was calling me every evening to, because I was getting the chapters as he wrote them too, and she would raise the pettiest objections to what he was writing. I mean, just, I, I can't even remember examples, but just so small. It would be sort of like looking at this picture and saying, well, you know, I think because the K is like big there, I think it kind of hurts the meaning, don't you think so? I mean, that, that kind of level, although we were really working with the words, but it was just that compared to the magnitude of what we were looking at, the objections were just impossible. And, you know, I'm facile enough to be able to kind of go where people are going and play it out. So we played it out for several nights, and finally I, could, I just had that sense of, this is crazy, because the woman is a friend of mine. It just She raised some further objection to some paragraph, and just out of exasperation, I said, what are we talking about? Just like out of my own, actually it was God-inspired, because I, the way I said it just broke the thread, and she answered spontaneously, she said, if he's not wrong, I'm going to have to do what he says. And I said, oh, we're talking about fear. It's very easy to talk about fear. Let's talk about fear. Let's not talk about this manuscript anymore. Because I can't stand to talk about the manuscript, because that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about fear of really, like, you know, if he really is a wise teacher and I'm here in this ashram that he's founded, you know, somebody is going to actually break into my little self-enclosed world and I might have to give up some of my ego and go along. I mean, that's very, but it's very natural to be afraid of that. That's a very real thing. But see, we get this negative doubt cycle going and we throw in a kind of uh, whatever it is that we're good at. You know, in this case, this particular person had a lot to say about the subject, so she could always sort of pull out something to say about the subject. But she, that wasn't really what was happening. It was all a facade, like Arjuna's facade. You're just afraid, Krishna said to Arjuna, because this is really a battle to the death. This is you, Arjuna, representing willpower at the third chakra. This is the, the disciple really having to go in there and fight the forces of materiality and they are going to get killed and you're the only one who's going to be left. You're just going to have to do battle with your own tendencies and there's no compromise. This is it. So Arjuna is throwing up all these reasons why maybe he shouldn't do this. And I always feel like if Arjuna could do that, it's okay for us. But just be honest about it. That's what I'm really doing. I just want to keep asking questions because I don't want to quiet down enough to have to really think, really deal with this. 
And so he makes a very strong distinction. It's very, very, very important because we all fall into this at different times. And that's why a lot of times it's just better to be quiet. Just meditate, do japa. And that's why we'll say things like that and people will think, oh, you just don't want me to think. You, you know, Swami just doesn't like people who ask questions. You know, people will say all sorts of crazy things because sometimes people will raise their hands, have in the past, when he used to give more informal satsangs, he would respond so differently to people. You know, and every so often somebody would raise a hand and ask a question, and he would just cut them off at the knees the way, the way it appeared. But he was answering their question. He just wasn't answering the question they asked. He was answering the question that their soul was asking, which is, how do I get out of delusion? And he would essentially say, not by those questions you're asking, you know, by a completely different attitude. And other people whose, doubt was, whose questions were genuine, even though they might be just appallingly minute, nonetheless, they were genuine. And, and he knew that if, I, if he gave them an answer, then we would go forward. I was talking to someone once who's, who, who's been a friend for many years, and we've been through many hard things together. And she was sort of uh, expressing a, sort of an apology for having been such a pill so many times. I didn't mind at all. I said, you know, I don't, I don't mind at all because we've never had to do the same thing twice. <laughs> I mean, even if we, sometimes you have to do it twice, but I was trying to compliment her. You know, sure, you get yourself in a lot of pickles, but you, you, don't do this, you don't do the same thing over and over. We're not just going in circles. We've always been progressing in a straight line, so who cares? You know, you can't help where you are. That's just what you have to realize. You can't help where you are, but you can act constructively from this point forward. How do you act constructively? Always, ever and again, through your awakened sons, the answer comes. You pick up the scripture, whether it's the rubat or whatever it is, you read what's there, and you believe it. You really listen to it. You don't throw your blind understanding back at it and say, but, you say, okay, I don't quite understand it, but I'm not going to posit my ignorance against it. I'm just going to stay with it until it goes deeper into me. It's a very, very important teaching. Okay. The mighty Mahmud, the victorious Lord, that all the misbelieving and black horde of fears and sorrows that infest the soul scatters and slays with his enchanted sword. The soul is stronger than all delusion. We mustn't ever forget it. Ignorance vanishes with the light. And life is a battle, folks. There's no way around it. And the last one. But leave the wise to wrangle. And with me the quarrel of the universe let be. And in some corner of the hubbub couched, make game of that which makes as much of thee. And this, uh, the commentary tells us it's just going to be an endless battle of light and dark. You might as well just consider it a good competition. And when, as Master says, when the karmic ball is thrown to you, then just toss it back with a joyous laugh instead of weeping and wailing and all that complaining. It's just going to be an endless show of ups and downs. Just an endless story of win and lose and success and disappointment and youth and old age and life and death. Just live in eternity and be free. That's what he wants us to do. Okay. Any other comments or questions? All right. That's it for tonight. We'll see you in two weeks. I'll see you before then, but we'll see you here doing this in two weeks. So we go from 46 to 60 next time. This hasn't been too much, has it? Three? I certainly haven't found it, so yeah, great. <laughs>